0: the Imperfectly Perfect campaign, sharing real life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health and reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and those who have been through extreme adversity. Alright guys, so episode of the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and today we've got another incredible advocate who does so much work in the space of mental health. So a little bit about her, we're going to welcome Alexa to the studio. Now a little bit more of her bio. Alexa has over 16 years experience in the health and fitness industry as an internationally published sports model and celebrity trainer. Born into a military family, her journey started on a mission for muscles after she was bullied at school for being too skinny. Her nickname was Alexa Anorexa. The gym, and in particular the weights room, became her sanctuary and was the first place she developed strength, both physically and mentally. To this day, her mantra remains, when I feel physically strong, I think strong thoughts. She is based out of Russell Crowe's 98 Riley Street gym in Sydney and is currently the fitness guru for Maxim Magazine and Maxim TV and the head trainer for Strong Magazine Australia, where she has a monthly mental health focus Common, Living Strong With Lex. She's been an ambassador and facilitator for Living for four and a half years now. In 2018, she completed a U.S. speaking tour opening for Kevin Hines, one of the world's most well-known suicide prevention advocates. So a varied career, but one nonetheless that is so, so highly acclaimed and um, a big congratulations, Alexa, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: You are welcome. Now. Unbeknown to both of us, we've actually both been in the industry in Sydney. <laughs> I've been for 15 years. Yourself?
1: Yeah, about well. In Sydney, probably will yeah. be coming out my seventh year now.
0: Seventh year. Yeah.
1: And
0: it's, we've never actually met until today. How does
1: that even work? I, this place is crazy small. small.
0: Yeah. I mean, and now you're in Riley Street. I think that's the only gym that I've never worked in.
1: Wow. You will have to <laughs> remedy that very
2: shortly.
0: Exactly. Surely. Exactly. <laughs> Now, what I wanted to touch upon, so obviously, you've had a very career, which we started within the fitness career. Can you take me back to those school days? I know you mentioned that you got nickname, Alexa, Mm -hmm. Anorexa. So where did it come from? Did you know that you had an issue at the time? And when people started calling you that, the effects or just take me back to the beginning.
1: Look, I think I didn't really, I didn't have any body image issues until that point. You know, um, I grew up in a military family. I lived in the UK and England, Ireland, Germany, went to military school till I was 10. And then we moved to New Zealand. And it was, you know, the high school years where you sort of start dating, you start getting a little more out there, you start figuring out if you're an academic or you want to play sports and, you know, who you're going to hang out with. And for me, I really wasn't part of the popular crowd. I was kind of a little bit more of an outsider. Um, I had an accent. People tend to pick on you for stuff they don't understand, Mm -hmm. and I was really, really skinny. Like, I mean, I flex now, and people are terrified. Uh,
0: (laughs) But guys, we will we will throw some pictures (laughs) up of her. She is pretty shredded.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But back in those days, like, I really didn't have. I didn't play sport sports. sports. Mm. Um, and I'd never really been that way inclined. I was definitely more of like a straight A student, a bit of a straight A 180 and a little bit of a teacher's pet. Mm. And whether that played into it, I didn't know. But I was at school, I had buck teeth, I had long hair, I could sit on it, I was really skinny. And the nickname Alexa Anorexa came about. And it was the first time I'd ever really heard anything negative um, about my body. And, you know, it didn't I definitely didn't develop any sort of like full-on body dysmorphia or eating disorders or anything, but it definitely played a part in the next part of my journey because I guess what people also didn't know is that at home I was having a really, really rough time because at the same point that I was being bullied at school and being called Alexa Anorexia, my mum was actually diagnosed with manic depression, now known as bipolar. And, you know, back in those days there was absolutely no education or awareness about mental illness or mental health or suicide, you know, when she got laid off from work, um, you know, it wasn't even a recognized textbook disease. And it was a really, really tough thing to deal with. You know, I was by myself at school. And then I would come home, my mum would literally be losing her shit at me. It was like I'm walking in the door and I'm like, oh my God, what is today going to be like? Yeah. Couldn't bring friends home because I was terrified.
0: And how old were you at this time? was going to happen?
1: I was like 15. Wow. So it's like that pivotal age. You yeah. know? And I couldn't even bring friends home, which was like even more alienating for me and mm. more isolating. And, you know, dad was drinking to cope with it. So he sort of, alcohol was his crutch. And so I started going to the gym and it was kind of like a double whammy for me. I started going one because I wanted to put on muscles and I wanted to feel strong. And then the other side of things, I needed like a safe place. And that's what the gym became for me. It became that one place that I felt like I had my shit together, that I had control, that I you know, could do what I wanted and for those, you know, one or two hours out of my day, I was my own person and I didn't have to worry about anything. And, you know, that truly, like I look back on it now and it was one of those things that it really set me up for life even though I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Yeah, So.
0: Wow. That's a lot to take on at a young age. And uh, as you say, a uh, pivotal, excuse me, a pivotal age when you're coming up to your... Your exams at sixteen, or is it? Well, mind you, that's the UK. I'm coming up with the UK now, so we have the pivotable exams at sixteen. Is is that the same? Yeah,
1: Where we were um, at fifteen and sixteen, I was like four, from five or six. Yeah. So uh, when I was seventeen, which would be my university entrance exams, and that was when my mum tried to take a life. So I walked wow. in on my mum about um, about to try. Yeah. And honestly, like that that moment probably. That was like the pivotal moment for me. It was the day that everything changed because up until that point, like I knew I was struggling. I knew we were struggling as a family. I knew she was struggling, but I had absolutely no idea that she was at the point where she felt like that was her only option. And honestly, like if I look at how far we've come in terms of mental health and suicide prevention now,
2: Mm.
1: you know, back then there was absolutely no education or awareness If I had known then what I know now, it wouldn't have changed her diagnosis, but it would absolutely have changed the way that I handled the situation. Yeah. Because it was kind of like from that point on, you know, because I walked in, she survived, but something in our relationship died that day and I didn't know how to fix it, you know, and if there's – my mum ended up passing away when I was 27 um, and – like, so this was ages and ages later, but I never was really able to build or mend that bridge. Right. And it's probably the only regret I've ever had in my life is not understanding how to fix that relationship, not understanding how to love her the way that she needed to be loved or be able to give her the support because I just didn't get it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And I mean, at 15, on one hand, you're going through your your own things. You're going through puberty and then you've got a mother going through this and then a father not knowing how to deal with alcohol. Mm. I mean, did anyone on the external, I ask everyone this question, but did anyone from the outside sort of see anything in you or recognize any symptoms or reach out? Did you feel that you could reach out to anybody? I know the resources nope. these days have become a lot better and the education out, but I mean, back in those days family members or
1: no because I so I'm an only child so I was like by myself from such a young age and I guess part of being in the military family was that I learnt you know how to be independent how to do everything by myself how to you know how to basically survive like Mm. be self-sufficient because I'd done it for so many years so you know, I told no one what was going on at right. home. I was terrified to tell my friends so I didn't want to be judged. Like I said, I didn't want to bring anyone home. My dad was drunk, so that was the other side of the coin. You know, I remember one day bringing a friend home and he was so drunk, he literally chased her around the couch with a chair because he thought it was really funny.
0: Wow. <laughs> and, like yeah.
1: fell over on the couch and like went to sleep holding the chair and my friend was like, oh, my God, what is <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: yeah. Did you see um, that friend again? <laughs> yeah.
1: <I> mean, look, <laughs> yeah. We, we actually ended up being yeah. really, really good friends, yeah. but, you know, because I think no one really understood the full Mm. extent of what was happening in my house but you know even if you had asked my dad what was going on I don't think he would have been able to give you an answer either because we actually never ever spoke about it and it's Mm. it's funny because like when I do a lot of talks now one of the first things I talk about is the fact that this I'm fine mentality kind of needs to stop because you know like I had a friend last year that took his life and I'm fine was one of the last text messages we got Right. Um, my mum, I'm fine was the last thing that she said to me before she tried to take her life. And like, I'm fine is what I said to every single person who asked me what was going on in my life. Yeah. So it's kind of that whole, it's probably, you know, two of the most toxic words.
0: It is. Yeah. And it, 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 it still continues to this day, doesn't it?
1: It is. Cause it's courteous. That's what people think you're expected to say. No one wants yep. to dump this shit on you. No one wants to feel like they're being a burden. No one wants to feel, you know, vulnerable. And so everyone just adopts that yeah yeah I'm sweet as sweet yeah. as mentality and
0: yeah. And I mean, when did when when did everything change for you in terms of dealing with the problems? I mean, I spoke to somebody f- before and they they had very similar upbringing that their mum went through through severe depression, mm. and they didn't know until they actually saw a doctor from a friend, and they actually spoke to the doctor and thought they were fine until they were. Diagnosed as clinically depressed, and she was like, "No, this is just normal." He was like, "No, it's not." So, when did you go from going, "Okay, this is maybe something I do need to talk to someone about," and obviously, these days you're a huge advocate for mental health and and yeah. you do incredible work, which we'll get into a little bit later. But for you, where was that pivotal moment where you gone, "I can't deal," because you went from like, say. What age did the, all this start? I know you said 15 there, okay. but I mean- I would
1: I would say 15. I mean, that was like, you know, yeah. I'd moved away from the UK. Yeah. We weren't in the military family anymore. I was being alienated at school. I mean, you know, when you're in a military family- you're kind of like you're adopted by that military family. So when you're at military school, you have friends. Because yeah. that was it's it's a family. It is. It really is a yeah. big family. Coming to New Zealand was a huge change. Not having siblings to rely on, having to be by myself all the time, not fitting in at school. Mm. Um, you know, so 15 was definitely the age where it all started, but you know, I had this double-edged life from 15. So on the one hand, I'd found fitness. On the other hand, I had an alcoholic father who would leave alcohol around the house. Right. And I knew that he was fixing his problems with alcohol. So why couldn't I do that too? Right. So I started to drink. And from 15 and 16, I had my first bottle of rum. To the point where I was that sick, I was never able to drink rum ever again. Like I drank a whole hip flask by myself. But that's what I would do every weekend, Friday, Saturday night, I would drink myself into oblivion. I would start my fitness stuff all through the week again. On the weekends, I was, you know, in inverted commas, and staying at a friend's house where I was absolutely going out and getting myself smashed, trying to fit in at school and trying to basically drink my problems away. And that is how I coped up until I was almost 30
0: And when did people start recognising that? I mean, I know your dad went through that. Did he start recognising signs in you and bring it up with you or because he was still going through it?
1: I left home when I was 17. Right. Um, You know, like after mum, I just didn't know how to deal with my whole family situation. Um, I ended up sleeping on friends' couches. You know, I got a job at the local surf store so I could actually like stay in school and support myself. Yeah. I moved to Auckland and got a job and took a gap year before I went to uni. And then like I worked on the tour of a strip club so I could pay my way through uni, yeah. you know, so I managed bars funnily enough while I was in Auckland. So I was away from my family for a long period of time. I was working in a job that was essentially enabling me,
2: Yeah, you know, so yeah. I'm
1: working in a bar, I'm managing bars um, all the way through uni, hanging out with the crowd that that's just what you did. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I was drinking really, really heavily and I never had an off switch. So like I never drank because I liked the taste of it. Right. I drank because I wanted to get shit faced. I liked being drunk. I liked that feeling of invincibility of the fact that I had no problems, that it gave me a false sense of confidence and security. Um, And it allowed me to be the fun one, you know. I had this other – it was kind of like an alter ego, you know, that allowed me to live out my life and – it was probably when I was, you know, early 20s when my friends recognized that I had a drinking problem, not right. so much that I was an alcoholic and that I drank by myself at home, although I did do that sometimes, yep. you know, but it wasn't an all the time thing. But in that, you know, I'd go out on the weekend and I would get so drunk that I either threw up, passed out and would just disappear and I'd get myself into these incredibly, incredibly dangerous situations. Hmm. You know, and my friends didn't know where I was and it wasn't until, you know, a friend of mine actually came up to me one night and they were like, you know, your friends love you, Alexa, but it's really, really hard to be your friend when you're drunk. Wow. You know, and it still, I cried. I got more drunk because I was that upset about the whole conversation, mm. got really angry at my friends um, and then, you know, just drank some more and it wasn't. It took, it would take me another five years or so to actually come to the conclusion myself that it needed to stop, that something needed to change, or I was probably going to kill myself exactly like my dad did. Yeah. You know, because he died of liver cirrhosis, and that's where everything, that was the second pivotal moment for me, is he, you know, he'd been an alcoholic since I was 16. And then when I, You know, I remember having one last Christmas with him when he couldn't even come to Christmas breakfast because his withdrawals were that bad. He Mm -hmm. would ring me at uni and be like, I need you to go to the liquor store for me and get me some alcohol. And I'd be like, I'm not going to the liquor store for you. And he was like, well, if you don't go, I'm going to drive there drunk. Wow. You know, it was that type of a, a relationship. And he, you know, I remember having this massive chat with him one day and I got really upset and I was like, you realize you're killing yourself. Um, you know, you're never gonna. You're probably never gonna see me get married. You're never gonna see me. Um, you're never gonna be able to walk me down the aisle. You're never gonna give me a father speech. You're never gonna see any grandkids. Like nothing. Mm. And he turned around and he was like, "I really wish I could tell you I loved you enough to stop, but I can't." Wow. And it was like Jesus Christ. Okay, I can't love this guy out of it. I can't guilt him out of it. I can't do anything with that. Like I just have to decide right here and now whether I'm going to have a relationship with him of any sorts and just Mm -hmm. accept him for what it is and who he is, or I walk away and that's on me. And I, and you know, after my mum passed away, I didn't even get to say goodbye to her. I was like, I'm not doing that with another parent. Yeah. So he ended up, um, he got liver cirrhosis and he passed away. It'd be almost what, 11, 11 years ago now. I went to his funeral, got absolutely shit faced in his funeral in New Zealand, Um, I was living in Hong Kong at the time, so I was like working for PR in PR for three bars. I was drunk all the time. Went to his funeral, drank his last bottle of whiskey, absolutely shit-faced, fell in a ditch, threw up all over myself, Um, missed my flight home the next day, woke up and went, you know what? Fuck this. It's got to stop. Yeah. And it was the first and last time, it was the last time I ever touched alcohol. It was 11 years ago. Yeah. It was
0: the. So it was just a wake up moment? It was one of those just just epiphanies. And I was just like,
1: this is, I'm like, I'm so done. This can't go on. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny because I tried so many times before then to like give up. Like you do, you, you get really drunk on the weekend. And you're like, first, I'm never doing this again. Yeah, and it starts again in the next week, and you're like, yeah, and then it gets to Monday, and you're like, yeah, I'm never drinking again. You know, it's this self perpetuating cycle. Yeah, um, and then yeah, that was the that was the moment. And that you know, the sad thing is, is that for a lot of people, you have to get that rock bottom moment. Yeah, to get the change because there there's that. You know, there really isn't an alternative option because yeah. I'm probably going to end up killing myself here.
0: Yeah. And that was but it. I mean, one, one of the premises that I always say about about the campaign especially is the removal of judgment. Mm. So what I want to ask, because that was never my thing, I had an addiction in the form of body dysmorphia. Yeah. But in terms of alcoholism or, or drug, whatever it may be, for you when you said you took it on from kind of the responsibility of what your dad went through when he was hiding his pain mm. – As someone external who may judge and go, well, how could you do that to yourself? I know you've explained a few things about what it made you feel, but what I'd like to know is when you're going through those stages of trying to blot it out, does it heighten the problem that you can remember it more and you just keep drinking more to try and forget it? Or are you remembering at the same time as drinking? Just for anyone out there that doesn't understand and and judges anyone on that kind of scale.
1: I used it as escape for two things. Right. It was escapism. Right. It allowed me to momentarily forget my problems because everything seems so much better when you're drunk. Yeah. And then everybody else is doing it.
0: Yeah.
2: So
1: you are not judged because everybody else is drunk around you escaping their own shit. So you are part of this other community. Yeah. That is absolutely not going to judge you. Like, I tell you what, now I probably get more judgment from going out sober Yeah. Than I ever did when I was going out and getting shit faced. And that's really concerning in itself. We have created a society where it is more normal to be off your head than it is to be out and sober. Because God, why do you not want to be fun? Yeah. (laughs) You know? But I mean when you
0: say when you said you used it as a way to escape, those kind of emotional demons, as as I suppose you could call them, did you forget them? I mean, momentarily, when you're with your friends and that, yes. but when you're on your own and you drank the bottle, like I've seen people before, they drink to forget, Yeah, but sometimes it makes them worse because
1: yeah, emotions
0: look, come up. So for yourself?
1: on the, While I was on it, sweet yep. as, I used to call Sundays self-loathing Sundays because right. Sundays were the come down. Right. Sundays, like if you've drunk Friday, you've drunk Saturday, you know, you're going back to work on Monday. You are like Sunday is a day where you just feel like absolute crap. Yeah, and it's kind of like I remember just you know thinking, God, what did I say to somebody? Did I tell somebody else's secrets? Um, you know, did I do something stupid? Did I, you know, offend somebody? Did wow, I you really number? took it far then, didn't you? Yeah, did I give <laughs> to my number? Yeah. I give my number out to somebody? Yeah. Like I remember getting a call from a random guy the next like the next day, hmm. and my boyfriend's in the room, and he's like, "Why are you giving your number out? Like you're in a relationship. Do you not tell these?" people yep. and i like i was like oh my god i can't even remember giving my number um you know or you know just expecting that sinking feeling in your stomach you feel sick because you're like just waiting for that text to come through that told you mm. that somebody hated you or you know whatever i mean i remember the first time my, my boyfriend and i even went on break is because i got so drunk someone got into a fight in a pub and i tried to break it up and got clocked and got knocked out wow. and he wouldn't speak to me for days. he's like i don't want a girlfriend that does that i was mm. like okay then wow yeah so it's it definitely like I I I definitely used it to escape and that gave me that sense of like everybody's going through the same stuff I'm part of this community I don't remember right now but then the come down was just it made everything so much worse
0: yeah high yeah 100% so I mean the day that you ultimately decided to change your life yeah how did you go about that
1: I got back to Hong Kong and I my partner I said like I when I was in Hong Kong, I'd met this guy who was like an ex-footy player, ex-fighter. He had an MMA gym in Hong Kong, and I'd started working for him, and I'd worked my way up to be the head strength and conditioning coach
2: okay.
1: um, in the club. So we flew back from Hong Kong after my dad's funeral, and one of, the, one of the girls who was a friend of mine who, was, who had started working at the gym was a teetotaler. She'd been through drug and alcohol rehabilitation. So she'd been four years sober. Mm. And I remember getting to the first weekend where everyone was going out, and I was like, Shit what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to have to sit home by myself. Like I can't go out because I like, I don't, I can't stop at one. Everyone's going to be like, just have one drink. Like they usually do. And Mm. I'm not going to be able to not do it. And I was was saying to her, I was like, I am so angry and I am so frustrated and I don't know what to do with myself. And you guys are all going to be out having fun. Like, what the hell do you do? Like, how do you manage this? And she was like, you have to find another hobby that gives you a purpose greater than yourself. Mm. And I was like, okay. So I ended up getting into half Ironman. Wow. I decided that I was going to sign up for triathlon and I joined a triathlon club and I started going to training every day and they would have these marathon, like six to eight hour sessions on the Saturday and Sunday that started like five in the morning.
2: Mm.
1: And so we'd get picked up at like 4.30 AM. So while everyone else was out getting drunk, I was like in bed because I knew I had to get up for this training session in the morning. And what it did was it gave me this, it gave me a new goal. It gave me a new purpose. Like I gave myself a certain amount of time. I was like, right, I'm going to compete. I'd never learned how to swim before. So I was like, I'm going to conquer my open water fear. I'm going to learn how to swim. Um, It gave me something to do on the weekend. So I wasn't sitting at home feeling like I was missing out you know, I'd go out to breakfast at this place called Frying Pan, which is like a 24-7 mm-hmm. breakfast place, and I'd be going out, my little bike pants turn off on my bike, you know, padded bike pants, my drink bottle wandering,
0: in <laughs> at yeah. like
1: four in the morning to yeah. have like eggs on toast. And all these drunk <laughs> people, including my then partner, yeah. would wander and like, off their chops and I'd be having arm wrestles with the guys there, like to get a free breakfast. <laughs> yeah. So this is what my how my weekend would start. And then I'd go off and I'd do these six to eight hour sessions. I was that knackered when I came back that I would just go to bed and it was sweet as. So that was how I dealt with the weekends. But then more importantly, it gave me an entirely new social circle
2: mm.
1: who absolutely understood what it was that I was trying to do. Quite often, you know, if you look at endurance sports in general, like I remember the first nutrition coach I ever with, who's like, what are you running away from?
2: Mm.
1: Because essentially I was replacing one addiction with another. Yeah. Albeit a more like a healthier one. But I had this whole new social circle who'd been through similar things, who were doing it for a similar purpose and who wanted to support me in that journey. So rather than people who wanted to encourage me to have one more drink, these were people that were just going to get up at four in the morning and come for a six to eight hour cycle with me. We'd go out and we'd go to like, you know, an event for a triathlon club and we wouldn't drink, you know, and my boyfriend used to joke about it and he'd be like, oh, you know, all you guys do is freaking talk about transition times. And I'd be like, yeah, well, what if it, <laughs> you know? so. But it was, it's so um, funny.
0: So essentially fitness saved your life.
1: Fitness 100% saved my life. And yep. it was, you know, they talk about, I've seen a lot of things lately, a lot of reading that I've been doing is like the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And that's what it was for me. It was creating that sense of connection with a different set of community. Yeah. Who wanted to support what it was they wanted to do. And I cannot recommend, like that's one of the first things that I say to people now when they come in. It's like, you have to have those people around you that absolutely understand what it is that you're trying to do mm. and want to support you. They want you to be the best version. They don't they're not going to be confronted by the decisions that you make about your own life because honestly, sometimes I go out now and I'm still amazed at how confrontational it can be for some people who think that I'm indirectly challenging their own lifestyle choices by choosing to remain sober. Yeah. You know, so it's a really interesting it's a really interesting place to be, but yeah, having those people so freaking important.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can transition that into any part of your life. I've noticed at the moment, like my my own journey and self-development and the people that I'm now associating with, and it's not that you've got to distinguish, distinguish yourself or remove yourself from older people, mm-hmm. but it's kind of whatever circle of friendship you're in, if you're not moving in the same direction, you need people to elevate you in whatever sense it be. So if that's going through addiction, moving from one to another, just almost like forming new habits mm. and new people. And again, it's not it's not removing yourself from the older people, but it's you need to be around people that are going to elevate you as well as you elevate them and move you in the right direction.
1: Oh, 100%. And people who are going to be really honest with you. You know, like I yeah. look back now at that guy who came up and had that chat to me in the pub. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that was a really fucking cool thing to do. Yeah. You know, and I wish people had more guts to be able to do that. Yeah. It, you know? And I mean, maybe you, you maybe you don't hear them at the time. Maybe it's not the right time for you. But, you know, if you're friends, if you've got true friends, yeah. they are going to be 100% really honest with you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I love those sort of people, though.
1: Oh, and I tell you, the It'll more work you do- they pull you up on this, your shit. Absolutely. You need <laughs> <Yeah>. those friends, <laughs> you man. You do. You really, really yeah. do.
0: But, I mean, when I was going through My body dysmorphia, I, I mentioned it on one of the other episodes. Basically, I ripped my journey. It was the first time. Um, so, I started a blog and I just thought, To know my passion of Hmm. this campaign is to know my truth. And it was the first time I wrote it down. And I was like, fuck, Glenn, you put yourself through some serious shit. (laughs) But when I put it out, half of my friends got in touch and said, wow, that was so strong. And I saw myself in parts of that. And when you wrote about us throughout that, yes, we did notice it, but we didn't want to push you.
1: Yeah, right. So
0: there's that sense as well you almost need those friends to call you out on it. But then because they don't know whether to overstep that kind of mark. And I'm like, now in hindsight, I'd gone, I wish you would have done. Because yeah. I used to be obsessed training with them and going, I can't feel my chest. I want this big aesthetic chest, but I can't feel my chest to the point where I fucking annoyed myself. <laughs> and and like one of my best mates, Dean, he was like, yeah, I just knew it. I knew there was something. And then when I wrote it, it was like, In a sense, I think everyone in the fitness industry has gone through an addiction of body dysmorphia. Even the people you look at who we think are aesthetically blessed Mm. are probably the ones that struggle the most because they're trying to maintain looking like that and they're struggling mentally. And some people, when I opened up about body dysmorphia, they'd never heard the term.
1: Well, it's not really regularly heard among guys. It's no. usually heard, same with eating disorders. Like yep. There's a lot more research now coming out on how prevalent it is within guys as well in a gym setting. But yeah, look, I mean, when I look at the fitness industry, and I've done quite a few talks in the fitness industry recently, mm. and everyone starts in fitness for a specific reason. Yeah, You know, like everyone, whether it be to look a certain way because- They feel a certain way about their body, whether they are trying to escape something, whether they're doing it to fit in, whether they're doing it because they want to feel more connected. Everybody starts it for some reason and very few people. It's purely aesthetic. The aesthetic is kind of, it's just the icing on the cake. It's all the shit that's going on underneath Mm. that gets them in the door in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And most girls I've spoken to now, like a lot of the women that I've trained, like it used to be the thing that you want to come in and be really skinny or, you know, like drop weight or whatever. Now, women are coming in wanting to feel strong. You know, I've got one client, Lizzie, I talk about her a lot. She's a legend. You know, she came in to me. She'd never been in a gym before. Weights absolutely terrified her. She lives with bipolar. She works in a high powered lawyer uh, as a high powered lawyer. So she works in a male dominated environment. Mm. It's her job to argue her case every single day. She was getting really overwhelmed. She was getting bullied at work. Um, And I remember the day she did like a 30 kg trap bar deadlift. And for her, it was like the best day in the world Mm. because she messaged me as soon as she got back to work. She'd shown the video to all the boys in the office. She was so proud of herself. (laughs) She was like, for the first time in my life, I felt. Empowered, she's like, I felt like I could say no. I stood my ground. Mm. I made really strong decisions, and I really set some boundaries. And I never thought I'd be able to do that. Yeah. So for her, that was the switch. It was that whole, I feel physically strong, mm. therefore I have this mental toughness and this resilience underneath, and I'm going to use that today. Yeah. And that's really cool to watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I love the, the sense that I pick up from you is is you are there for your clients. Mm. and and you've gone through that kind of thing. What I wish for the fitness industry, and I say it to a lot of people and I've trained with people all over the world and and especially some of these big influential guys, It's it's almost to the point where I'm going, do you realize that you go into this kind of industry and sometimes forget the personal part of the training and the coaching? So almost drop the bravado uh. because when you tell your real truth about what it's taken you to get where you are, you will notice you resonate and click with so many more people and they've got so much more respect for you. So these people who, well, like yourself, you've triathlons, you've won, you've won things and accolades and everything like that, but you're very open about your journey and where you've been. Uh-huh. Some people still to this day hold that, well, I've got these hundreds of thousands of followers, but I don't tell them that to get there, I've gone through my struggles as well. And sometimes I'm like, I just wish some people in the fitness industry would break that barrier. And that's no judgment. That's just going, we're all human and we're all imperfectly perfect. Like it it takes a lot to open up and say, hey, you know what? I may have won this bodybuilding competition, but mentally I struggled. But look, I still did it. And it, it takes resilience and it takes strength. And look at you, you're flying with your career and people resonate more to you, I suspect. Because you're very open about what you've been through and there's a couple more people in that industry that I do know who have openly spoke about addictions in the past and what they've overcome and then they've competed. And people congregate to them and go, Wow, if they can do it, I can do it.
1: Everyone wants a everybody loves a comeback. Like really. Like you think about any successful Hollywood movie. Mm. It's about the underdog coming out on top. Everybody loves a comeback story. And, you know, I was my career was fine, like I was an established personal trainer, but I didn't really start doing the stuff where I felt like I had a purpose mm. um, because people were really resonating with me until I started telling my story. Mm. And you know, it's it's interesting now because sometimes I feel like people have this huge fear of judgment and I get it. Because, you know, society tells us that we're supposed to look a certain way and act a certain way and hang out with a certain amount of people and, you know, set all these guidelines and stuff. So people don't want to move outside of that for fear of judgment. And especially when you're on platforms like social media, Mm. as soon as you do start opening up to be vulnerable, you do open yourself up to people's opinions and people's criticisms. And if you're vulnerable to begin with, Mm. you have to be able to handle that, you know, and sometimes it takes a lot to get to that point, I think if you, you know, the, the people that are openly speaking about their journey are usually the ones, and this is like a broad generalized sweeping statement, but yeah. they've usually done enough work on themselves mm. that they've sort of come out the other side so that when people are having an opinion on their life, they can talk about it. Yeah openly and honestly without sort of that huge emotional attachment that still happens when you're in the midst of it mm. you know like for me I've been sober for what 11 years now so I find it really easy to talk about all the stuff that's happened because I dealt with it yeah I've gone inside I've had some really painful painful years where I've had to really break myself open and heal but I'm on the other side of it and in hindsight it's it's much easier to speak about it when you've been through and done the work. If you're still in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through you know, and using, say, social media as a source of external validation because you don't love yourself enough or you don't believe in yourself enough and you're finding all these other people out there need to give you that reassurance that you're good enough or that you're worthy to be doing your job, then yeah, they're probably not going to talk about it. But my career started taking off when I was really open and honest about having these conversations, yeah, you yeah. know, so it's um yeah, and i often I find now that you know sometimes sharing your own story can be the one thing that somebody else needs to hear, yeah, to start yeah. having a conversation about their own, so I think people are definitely getting better at it, but there's still that huge stigma or fear of judgment
0: to do it, and I mean, what you it. just said there about putting yourself out if you 're going through something vulnerable, mm. it was funny, I can relate it to a story of uh, of a friend who who initially had an issue with the campaign um, and they gave me some reasons behind it. And then maybe two weeks afterwards, actually reached out and said, I think the issue I had was because I've been struggling. So to see it, that, and then yeah. a couple of weeks after, it was kind of like, what I think might get through it is if I open up and tell my story. Now, enough research and education that I've put myself through I'm working with clinical psychologists now to learn more about it. I was like, whilst you're going through it, it isn't a good idea, especially with the publicity that it's attracted. Yeah. To tell your story on a platform, first of all, is one thing. But then if you're in a vulnerable position, as you've just said, for people to start asking questions when you're not ready to talk about it, it isn't good. Initially, okay. God, I, I, I got blasted by my friend because they couldn't apprehend it. They thought I was judging in a sense, but disregarding them, not wanting to be a part where yeah. it was coming from a place of love. And again, when I explained all this, that took an initial two weeks before I heard back from them, and they'd spoken obviously to their psychologist or therapist that they were seeing, and they was like, "Yeah, I agree." and I was like, "It obviously comes from a place of love, but if you're going through something and you're unable to handle that, my god it 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 can tear you apart.
1: because you relive it, yeah, so it can cause you to spiral again, yeah." Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I did, I remember being in Hong Kong one day and just like reaching the end of my tether and, you know, just standing in the middle of apartment one day, feeling so alone mm. and just being like, I probably need to call someone right about now. Yeah. And it was the first time I ever, ever understood that I was in a position where I needed to do that because mm. I'm generally a really happy and optimistic and outgoing person. And I never thought that I had the capacity to feel that low that i was seriously considering taking my life yeah and i remember like just getting on the phone and just ringing like this counseling number and just being like someone needs to talk to me right now or i'm going to do something stupid and from then on i went to a psychologist like twice a week but you know people wow. don't even understand now that like 63 percent of people go to their gp mm. it's not for physical health it's for mental health yeah and people don't know that you can go to the doctor now and you can ask for a mental health plan. Yeah. And they give you 10 subsidized sessions with a psychologist. People don't understand that it's so much easier to talk to someone now. Yeah. Back then, so much more judgment now. So many more people relate to and resonate with you because they've all been and done there. Like going to a psychologist, I mean, you've been to the States. It's like second nature. That's what it, these people do all the time. It's yeah. like having a coffee. Well, the first time over I went here, over and
0: everyone's like, oh, I'm seeing my therapist. It, 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 it was in everyday conversation.
1: Over here, whereas, it's not so much. No,
0: and there's nothing to be ashamed of.
1: No, but people, so, I mean, like over here as well, like it can be seen as something that's like an indulgence. Mm, it's expensive. Yeah. But, you know, like it's, it takes like the subsidized sessions come from like 130 or 170 down to like 50 bucks a session. Yeah. You know, going in and asking for that help. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, there's. There are so many resources. There's so many 24-hour helplines. There's so many people out there that absolutely want to help and want to talk. You know, I, I put up this quote. I saw this quote the other day that was like, "I absolutely want to spend as long as it takes to listen to the shit that you're going through,
2: mm.
1: then spend 15 minutes at your funeral listening to your eulogy."
2: Wow, that's you powerful. You know, and it really yeah. just
1: sat there, and I sat and I was like, for everybody out there who thinks that, you know, like if you're If you remember, and that's how I explain it at schools, it's like you remember the last time a mate came to you and came to you with a problem, doesn't matter how big or how small, and you were able to help them out just by listening to them. How good did you feel as a human? Yeah. Did you feel great? Like Mm -hmm. you were like, fuck yeah, I was able to make that person feel better just by sitting here and being a shoulder. Yeah. So next time you feel like you don't want to burden somebody else with whatever it is that you're going through, flip the switch and remember how it felt to be able to help that person because that's essentially what you're empowering somebody else to do. Yeah, And like, sometimes it's just as simple as remembering this, those little things, you know?
0: And I suppose it's a a sense of reverse psychology in a way, because Mm. what I'm thinking, I'm putting my judgment on you there by going, they don't want to listen. Whereas I don't know, (laughs) I'm imprinting that on you from my thoughts. So in turn, if you flip that in your head and go, you know what, if I don't, reach out and ask, I will never know. So I think that's where that needs to... But, I mean, going through my struggles and I suppose when you went through your struggles, at the time when you're going through it, what people don't understand who have never been through it's kind of... It's a sense of, you do feel helpless. Like, you're feeling half the time you don't want to get out of bed. So you do... it, It is hard for someone who's never been through it. I mean, when I was at my bottom, like, we was living in Thailand, so take away the Australian culture where I'd built my life and my friends to going into this new culture where no one spoke English. (laughs) And I was, I was running sales and operations in this CrossFit club. Again, that was very transient. So there were a lot of business people coming through, but no one I essentially could connect with. And it wasn't, everyone's like, oh, you lived in Thailand. You must've been having so much fun and traveling islands. I'm like, not with a kid. (laughs) Like you've got to live there. So I was living in the middle of Bangkok and we couldn't find childcare in Sydney. So I was like, in one aspect, I was going body dysmorphia, looking in the mirror for up to four hours a day, not paying attention to my kid and my wife to the point it got out of hand. And the more I've I've realized on, on body dysmorphia is there's two ways it can go. Either you just can't stand looking at yourself and you just avoid mirrors altogether or you're obsessed over perceived flaws. And that was mine. But I always say that journey I believe I went through because then I started noticing it and congregating towards people in the gym when I started picking up on those signs and yeah. being able to help them. But it's it is a messed up mind and powerful thing, isn't it?
1: It really is. Um, you know, even with the writing and stuff I do, I got asked this the other day. They're like, you know, what what do you do when you have like negative thoughts about yourself that pop into your head? Because everybody has them. Yeah. And it's like, I basically imagine my best friend or someone I love coming to me and telling me the stuff that I was just thinking about myself and then imagining myself giving them advice that yeah. I write that down and then I repeat it back to myself. That's good. And sometimes that's all you can do, you know, mm. because again, it comes down to creating habits and the minute now you think something negative about yourself, it's like, okay, what can I replace that with? What am I grateful for Yeah. in that moment? Gratitude is a huge thing for me. I try and do it every single day. Huh. So negative thing comes in. I'm really grateful for the fact that I get to be here today and tell my story, yeah. you know,
0: or for whatever it is. Um, but you just hit it on the head there. Gratitude, it's a huge thing for me as well. Huge. I set a, a community page up for the Imperfectly Perfect, and basically I set a, a challenge. Basically going, name three things, what you do for your mental well-being a day. Within two days, got like 250 videos worldwide. Three main things that came up, the whole premises, gratitude, meditation, and fitness.
1: Amazing.
0: There's something in it. And that's oh. coming from every, every country all over the world where people were coming in. And I, and I tell people, like, even my wife once, she was like, oh, it's all wishy-washy. Until she started, and I attribute a lot of this campaign success to all the gratitude and journaling and writing things down. And 100%. I mean, like, what is the worst can happen? Like, if you're thinking negative, you attract negative. You think Absolutely. more positive, you attract it. When you're in a happy mood, you have a good day. Do you know what I mean? And when people say things come in threes, that probably attributes because you've had a shit morning, then you suddenly have a mood, something else happens, and you go, oh, that's the second one. What the hell? <laughs> like,
1: oh, for sure. Like, I've started meditating now. So, like, yep. I've just got an app, like, I've downloaded it for free on my phone. And I've just started with like five minutes every single day. Yep. Um, you know, and for me, it's been changed. Like, it's a game changer that yep. automatically I'm calm. It's something I do a lot of the talks about. I'm like, okay, so just, you know, people have this thing about meditation where they're like, it's this woo woo concept that we're going to yep. go up to the Byron Bay hinterlands, we're going to get half naked, we're going to sit cross legged in the jungle, <laughs> and we're going <laughs> to, Yep. And it's actually not. Like meditation is actually defined as one deep mindful breath with intent. Yeah. So and in the space of one deep mindful breath, you can visualize any positive outcome you want. Yeah. You know, like nailing a job interview or a first date, not like that. Sounds really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, you know, or kicking the winning winning goal or scoring the winning try. A lot can happen in that one deep mindful breath. But that is a really easy way to start meditating or even like One of the exercises that I do with people I work with is like, um, you know, for 20 seconds, close your eyes. In that 20 seconds, I just want you to count the number of sounds that you hear. Mm. And then they open their eyes and I'm like, you just meditated for 20 seconds. But this was not about the number of sounds that you counted. It literally gave you a 20-second reprieve from whatever it was that you were thinking about before Mm. you came in here and sat down here today which when you're in the middle of a really acutely stressful situation or they're really in the middle of one of those spirals where we have this problem that starts as this tiny little nutshell yep. and all of a sudden we've thought about it and thought about it and then rehashed conversations and now we're stressing about shit that hasn't even happened yet. It can be a really good way of bringing it back down to zero. It doesn't fix it, but it definitely gives you that reprieve. Yeah. So all of these, like there's so many really simple techniques um, that don't take time and money. For people to be able to bring into their life that allow for a sense of calmness, there's so many things you could do,
2: yeah.
1: you know, that have the ability to change that mindset around. People talk a lot about the fact that you know, like, there's so many quotes out there because social media can be a dangerous thing in the sense that mm. it's always like, you know, be positive and be happy and just do this and just do that. And it's like, well, if being happy was that easy, yeah, we'd all be out of a freaking job, <laughs> wouldn't we? Yeah. You know, but it's about people choosing to do the work, Mm -hmm. just like going to the gym, just like what you put in your mouth, choosing to be grateful, choosing to go, okay, I'm having some negative thoughts here. How can I switch that around? Acknowledging that there's stuff going on and then choosing to work on it, do the work. That's the other part of the puzzle. It's not about, you know, like just waking up and being happy one day because you decided you were going to be happy. It's waking up one day, or wake up every single day and consciously making the choice hmm. that at every single intersection that you have, there's always going to be two options. Yeah. You know, and invariably if you start making the more positive choices, it turns into a bigger habit and that's how you create happiness over time. Yeah. And then when you're happy, you tend to attract other people who are on the same wavelength as opposed to being in a really shit place mm. and attracting really shitty people. So it's kind of like this. It is. It's like a self-perpetuating, more positive cycle mm. that you can create, but you have to choose to do the work. It's not easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like a truck's like. Mm, and like absolutely the last podcast chips i don't know if you know chips he's within the fitness community as well he's okay. been around a long oh, time Does, does meditation.
1: meditation i know chips
0: he's incredible <laughs> um so i actually did his podcast and then mm. invited him on mine and How and good. like he even said he said that that what people initially think about meditation he said he changes the stigma towards it he says you've got to think you've got a six foot black man from South London. <laughs> he was like, Good that start. you would not think <laughs> is kind of what people at, like attribute to towards meditation, like the hippie or the, the dreadlocks and that mm. kind of stuff. So he said he opens a lot of people, especially in corporates minds to it. Cause a lot of people, like you say are closed off to it 100%. and you have to work on yourself. And the more that I have found from doing this campaign is the people who have actually gone to rock bottom, and come out the other side are all doing the same thing. They've opened their mind, they've found meditation, gratitude. And at the end of the day, if you don't know how to find a place of happiness, then maybe go and volunteer your time, like go and help other people. And you will just see, I mean, this weekend I went and spent like the the weekend down in Wingham with Hmm. a bushfire relief just to help them. And just to see the gratitude on people, like they just needed people. And again, it was like, the older generation in that community all help him. And I got there early. So we sat there with my friend and I was like, where's the young people? Like the the suicide rates are attributing to, and nothing to do with a bushfire appeal. But I was just like, you've got the communities together, but the the old generation. Where's the young one? And then this bus turned up with the part of the Bondi crew that that we were with. And you should have seen the tears and the, the look in their eyes like, wow, we've got 30 young people that care. I was like, so if you're going through something out there or you're listening to this podcast, like, and you're young, like volunteer your time and just see like when you get a part of a community, like you should never feel alone because you're always gonna, gonna find that. Which leads me on to the next thing. You do some incredible work with living as an Mm. advocate towards mental health and you're going to schools and you talk to the younger generation. I do. So tell me more about that.
1: Oh God, honestly, um, you know, we talk about we've talked about a couple of pivot points in my life so far. Like the first one was mum, mm. you know, trying to take her life. The second one was my dad um, killing himself via alcohol. The third one would be two years ago. Um, I've been a you know I've been an ambassador for Living for four and a half years now, and I started off you know I've always had a story, obviously. Um, you know, you've heard most of it by now, but never a really really cool story. And um, <laughs> yeah. so two years ago, I was diagnosed with degenerative osteoarthritis in my hip. Right, And essentially that meant that in the space of eight to 10 months, I went from being an athlete to somebody who couldn't walk across a room unassisted. I couldn't get out of bed. I was literally like had to pull my leg out of bed. I couldn't like step off a curb to mm. like get across the road. I couldn't go hang with my friends anymore because I literally couldn't walk without my crutches. I was in that much pain. Couldn't sleep because I was in consistent pain. Um, couldn't train properly. Was isolated from all my friends and family. I couldn't even get out of the shower and put my pants on because I couldn't stand on one leg, you know. And it was probably the hardest thing outside of my parents that I've ever had to be through. But mm. I learned so much about myself in that time. Most, The biggest thing arguably was learning how to not just ask for help because I had to, hmm. but being able to take help when it was given to me, because that was always been something that I had struggled with, and that was a huge lesson. It also brought me really, really close to people around me because all of a sudden I was letting them in, I was being vulnerable because hmm. I had to be. Um, but the biggest thing that happened was it was on August, August the twelfth, two thousand seventeen. Um, I was admitted into St. Vincent's Private to get my hip replacement done, and this was at eight in the morning, and at twelve p.m. I woke up in ICU on a breathing tube with three of my best mates standing over my hospital bed crying because they'd been called in by the hospital and they thought I'd died. Turns out I had. So I'd had (laughs) an anaphylactic reaction to my antibiotics and surgery. I'd flatlined and I'd had to be resuscitated four times. And That's insane. it It was the craziest experience of my life. I mean- There was no white light and there was no conversations with Jesus, though. You know, I had 137 DMs on Instagram asking me if that was the case. It's funny because you shot Liv Highland, Liv Highland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She took me into hospital. So she was one of the friends that was standing and she had my social media. So she'd written on my social media, so Alexa's just... (laughs) (laughs) Reactions. So she's putting all this up and updating people. So people are reading this going, holy shit, Alexis just died. She's like, no, it's okay. She's being resuscitated. Oh, my God. So all these people are um, are DMing. But, you know, I woke up and I'd had, you know, like I said, no white light, but there was this absolute moment of clarity Mm. and this moment of like, okay, I know exactly what I'm here for. And it all came back to like the last thing that I had done before surgery was I had gone to the school in Townsville for living. And I had done a presentation and I'd shared my story. And um, as I was delivering it, I was, you know, Townsville has one of the highest suicide rates in the country. Mm. So they're a military-affiliated school. One of the students I'd spoken to had lost three people in the space of a year, like her dad, her, her dad, her uncle, and her best mate to suicide. Like heartbreaking. And as I'm delivering it, I'm watching this young girl in the front row literally head in her hands and she is bawling her eyes out. And I'm like, oh God, like I've really triggered something in her. Like, I'm going to have to be really careful here. What do I do? And I'm watching her the whole time. She waited until everybody had left and she came up to me and afterwards and she gave me the most beautiful, the most amazing hug. Like, it still makes me emotional thinking about it now. And she's like, thank you. Today you saved my life. And I'm standing there going, what? What are you talking about? And she's like, today was going to be the day that I killed myself. Wow. But – listening to you share your story has made me realize I'm not alone
2: Mm.
1: and I'm going to go and ask for help. And I just remember standing there just being like, holy shit, what Mm. just happened? I had no idea that just sharing my story
2: Mm.
1: could have such a profound impact on somebody else's life. And that conversation, that was the first thing I remember when I woke up and I see you. And I was like, I want more of those moments. Mm. I want more of those conversations and this is what's going to happen. Yeah, And that's when I started, like I reached out to living again. I was like, I want to do more of this. Like this is, this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm meant to be doing. You know, at 15, I didn't understand it, that this was the path I was going to take. At 17, I didn't understand it. At, you know, at 29, I didn't understand it with my dad. Now I fucking understand it. Like yeah. this is what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be having these conversations and encouraging more people to have these conversations so that we can save more lives. Yeah, That's what needs to be happening here. And it was like, and that's like, if I could get any pe like anyone to remember anything that I say in any talk that I do, it's that every single day, every single person has this power Mm. to make someone's day, change someone's life, or potentially even save it. Mm. I mean, fuck, what an incredible
2: gift. Mm. Like,
1: you know, we all have that gift, we just don't all choose to use it. And If we look at what's going on in the world, like in terms of even suicide, and no, it's not an easy subject. Mental health is not easy. Mental mm. illness is not easy. Suicide is not an easy fix. But if we all just took a good look at ourselves, you know, volunteering, kindness, choosing to do these things that help people and not be assholes to each other online and in daily life, that would go a long freaking way.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Towards making this better.
0: I mean, it it just goes to show you, doesn't it? I mean, like the protest this weekend on climate change in the city and everywhere, that many people turned up. Mm. Imagine if that many people, exactly what you just said. Like, it just shows we're united in strength by numbers.
1: Absolutely. we
0: can change this, but it starts with us.
1: 100%. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at the climate thing now, you know, like the bushfires, it is absolutely devastating and heartbreaking to see. But if you look on the positive side, I don't think anyone understood... What the people of Australia and globally, what everyone was absolutely capable of, if every single person just put in something yeah, and everybody has stepped up, yeah, you know, and you just look at the incredible difference, like everyone stood there and was like, I'm one of 7 billion people. Okay, well, that's great. What if all 7 billion people of you, one person stood up and came together, like what an incredible effect you would have. And that's exactly what's happened.
0: Well, it goes to Celeste Barber. Oh my like, god. The humanitarian in her. What a legend. What what she probably didn't even know what was going to happen, but like she even said she's not the face of it. She doesn't want to be seen as the face of it, but what she single-handedly has done has shown that we are stronger united than our leaders.
1: 100%.
0: Like and that goes a long way. But uh, what I wanted to touch upon when you said the thing about when you woke up and that's what you knew wanted to, what you wanted to do. Yeah. So um, I'll call him a friend now because we hit it off when I did a TV show in the US and he came on and he talks openly about his suicide attempt and he actually went through months of researching it before mm. he was going to do it. Um, But what I always took away from him was like, he's a presenter, he does this, he's on radio, he's on this, he's on this. And he said, you know what, Glenn? He was like, all this is bullshit. This <laughs> means more to me. Talking to you, talking real, and being able to use my platform that I've been lucky enough to get. So he's attributed to—he's a bloody good-looking man. Like he's six-foot black man, big. He's <laughs> yeah. like and chiselled, and on camera you're like, "Whoa!" Sounds Americans all sound really good on camera. Let's face it, don't they? <laughs> they all sound good. I just want them all go, "Damn, girl!" <laughs> yeah, and. <laughs> For years, hated the way he looked, hated the way he sounded, and that's why he was going to take his life. He just self-loved himself. And I was like, dude. I was like, well, I'd look at you, and it was like, yeah, but then I look at you, and I think, well, you look like you're trained, so how did you have body dysmorphia? Like, yeah. And it's, it's, it's how we, what we let in our mind. But he, what you just said there, what you knew what you wanted to do, he is a, a wellness coach. All this stuff he does off the side, he said he's lucky to do and he's grateful to do, but it means nothing if he can't help other people. Yeah, And he's built a career now of helping other people, and I think it's amazing. And one of the quotes that – it's not even a quote. It's it's something that a friend said, and she openly – through the campaign, she she pretty much – she was an actress. She did Home and Away. She did all this. She went to LA. She's done some incredible stuff over there. She went to the Oscars, and – she made a video and she didn't tell anyone she'd done it. For three months, she turned the camera on herself when she was going through her severe depression and anxiety and everything. And, and and she mixed them together. And it was showing on one hand, you've got this side on the other hand. So it was so exposing a vulnerability. And she was like, what people don't realize about me is that I've thought about taking my life so many times because of all this that I've been through and I've seen therapists and I've done this. But you know what I think? And it's always in my head. Tomorrow could be the best day of your life. And that stuck with me. And I tell it to every single person I come across because I'm like, and quick disclaimer, when, when we always talk about this stuff, like we never claim to be experts. There's professionals out there that 100%. obviously do. But when you hear things like that and what you just said and you woke up and you're kind of, again, you didn't have the white light moment, but you had this thing going, this is what I need to do. And now you do incredible talks. I mean, I read a little bit about you, but how, how many talks have you are you You've been all over Australia doing these. Ooh,
1: I have. Um, I spent a lot of time in the mines last year. Yeah. That was a really eye-opening thing for me, like two and a half weeks um, traveling around to rural communities um, and schools. And that's a different
0: ballgame, isn't it? All Absolutely. together. Yeah. It's,
1: um, you know, you're talking to, I spoke to one, you know, one guy who was, and this comes back to purpose as well. It was like, you know, I was talking to this one guy who is, in his mid, you know, mid-50s, he's an ex-military contractor. He'd been working in the mines. We happened to be doing um, – we were at the, the wet mess doing a presentation mm. that night, interestingly enough, um, while they were having a bit of a barbecue and stuff. And he came up to me after we'd sort of done the presentation and he was like, yeah, you know, I've had nine friends take their lives. And I was like, Jesus Christ, do I have nine friends?
2: Mm. You know, it
1: was a real eye-opening. He was like, yeah, and then I've tried three times. I was just and I was just sitting there and he was like, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. He was like, but you know what? You know, he's like, I just I don't feel like I have a purpose in life. And I was like, okay, what if, what if your purpose was to share your story so that another young kid out there who is going through something and could absolutely relate to you, what if your purpose was to tell your story to him and that would save his life? Yep. Would that be a pretty cool fucking purpose?
0: I love how you explained that to him.
1: And he was just like, wow, I've never thought about it like that. And he's like, maybe I should tell my story. I've always thought about writing a book. It's like, maybe you should do that. But
0: it's powerful. It's powerful. And I've said to each and every person, yes, like the media will always sensationalize this campaign because of the names attached to it. But I always try and say, I mean, when it's been interviewed and people say celebrity campaign, to me, I find it a little offensive sometimes. Like, I'm always thankful for the platform because it gets the message out. But at the end of the day, I'm like, people need to remember there's a plethora of industries. Like, there's CEOs on there. There's there's sports people. Like, there's fitness professionals. Like, just because we see someone in entertainment and we think it's that, I always bring it back because I'm saying to everyone who's come on this campaign, I'm like... You do not realize the effect your platform gives you to make a change in life. And I I always say to the best one, like Marnie Kennedy, don't Liff Island's friend.
1: Yeah, I know Marnie.
0: Beautiful girl. She's She's incredible. Um, She was straight on board and and, and she did this video and she said, if I had a campaign like this when I was 16, it would have changed my life. She posted one... because we did Channel 9's Today Show together. Yeah, right. God, she was my rock on that day. I was shitting myself.
1: She's <laughs> like... so cool, calm and collected, that girl.
0: But she was not that day as well. <laughs> Wasn't she? So I was expecting so was her she? to become <laughs> calm and collected, and she was like, Glenn, you've got to realise, like we was in the green room. I'm like, money. what do I do? Like, I'm shitting myself. Like, why do you think I'm a photographer? I'm behind the camera. And um, she was like, I would love to help you, but we don't do live TV. This is <laughs> like everything's recorded when they do <laughs> right. filming. Um, And we went on, but she took an extract of that and she posted it on her social media pages, nearly 40,000 hits and all these messages. And she said she'd received messages from people she went to school with. And she was like, that for me was a moment when I goes, shit, I realized what I can do for people and everything becomes second nature like, yes, I'm an actress. Yes, I'm I'm this, but look what I can do. And I always say to each person that comes on, I'm like, take this as a moment to realize that yes, you're in a, a position in entertainment or sport or whatever. And Hey, I'm just Glenn. I'm the small guy. But what I've noticed from anyone coming on this campaign or anything like living beyond blue, whatever is just know that your story is going to help that one person. And then through the campaign, um, People have reached out to me, obviously, when they've seen it and they've seen it and they're going, we can help make your social media grow. We can do this. We can do this. Mm. And I'm like, I'm okay. Thank you. I'm like, because whether it gets one hit, whether it gets 50, if it gets one hit towards that right person and it changes their life and it helps them, then I'm all right.
1: Oh, that's exactly it. Like I said to you earlier, you know, like sometimes you go into schools, I go into schools and I'm talking to kids from anywhere from 11 to 17. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you walk into a room and you're telling these stories and these kids are like not looking at you, they're talking to your mates, they're on their phones, they're completely disengaged and you're like, what the fuck am I here for? Like seriously, these kids do not want to be here. They don't care about what I'm saying, far out. And then I'll get back and I'll leave the school and I'll have three or four messages on Instagram from kids who were absolutely struggling that day and if one kid's life is saved... From a group of like a, you know, a thousand. Yeah. That's one life that you've saved. I mean, what an incredible thing to have been able to do. And by doing nothing more than having a conversation about stuff that you went through. And that everybody has that ability.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: but we underestimate the impact that we can have just by having those conversations, you know? Yeah. So I mean, I hope people realize that, you know, sometimes even you know, we talk a lot about there being a stigma involved with mental health and asking those questions, you know, asking, you know, how are you and having the I'm fine answer. But a lot of people don't want to have those conversations because they're scared of where it's going to go. And like you said, mm-hmm. we're not psychologists, yeah. you know, but you don't need to be a psychologist to care. To care. Yeah. No. And that's sometimes all that needs to happen. Like a middleman or somebody to talk to, if you're having a conversation with someone you care about, you don't need to have to fix them. Yeah. You don't have to have all the answers. Yeah. That's not expected all you need to do is care. Yeah. And that's it. And if everyone just thought that way, there'd be a lot more conversations. Yeah. You know, and a lot less judgment. So,
0: Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to get you in. I think what you do is incredible. You're an incredible you. lady with an incredible story. Aww. So, <laughs> tell people where they can find out more information about you and where they can find you on your socials.
1: Okay, so I am at Action Alexa. On the gram, I'll be doing all my flexing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talking about all my real stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Alexa Towsie on Facebook and on Twitter. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. So I've been doing a little bit of stuff on there. The I'm fine video, that well, the I'm fine stuff that I talked about actually went viral on there. So oh, wow, um, it was a big, big, big conversation. So that's probably, yeah, where you can find me.
0: Wow. Well, guys, that was episode six. So make sure you head to the iHeartRadio app, subscribe to the Imperfectly Perfect campaign podcast. I will throw up all Alexa's links so you can find her on there. We'll also add some pictures of her flexing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. She's shredded, guys. Um, (laughs) But no, it's been an incredible chat. Keep tuning in for more incredible guests and we will see you next time.